The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and our study this morning is part 2 of the exposition of this letter to the church at Philadelphia. This is the blessed church, and I say that it is the blessed one because of all the churches of Asia, this one is the church that we would most want to be. A blessed church is one that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a church that is true to his work, that is true to his gospel, It's a church that first and foremost glorifies Christ. It's a church that has zeal in following the commission that that Christ has given us. It's a church that labors in holiness and truth, the two attributes that are the most prominent in this letter. This church was a blessed church because the Lord spoke encouraging words to it, and He doesn't mention any of their faults. Now, we know that all churches have faults. It's made up of people that have faults, but none of us is perfect. And yet, the Lord having no rebuke for them shows that this is a church that minimized, uh, minimized their sins, not minimized in the sense that they thought that they weren't sinning, but they tried as hard as they could not to sin. They were working on the weak areas of their lives where they did sin. And the Lord is simply acknowledging here that You have responded to whatever correction you've been given. As you look at the Word of God and you measure your life by the mirror of God's Word, you have corrected your faults. You've taken care of things. You're faithful to do that. And so here is a church that's unlike the others. There is no significant fault that the Lord calls them out and shames them because they have rejected some essential doctrine of the faith. And let me comment just a little bit further on that point, that we do need to be very careful about our criticisms of other churches. There are churches that have differences with us on preferential issues. Our styles might be different. Our worship may be a little bit different. The ministries may not look exactly alike. That's not really a cause for us to contend with other churches. But we must contend with those who have doctrines that affect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they preach something that's not true to the Word, we must contend with them because there are some doctrines that take away from the glory of Christ. And we have to stand against those. We don't go along with people just to get along. The most important part of any church is the doctrine that it preaches. And so when you look for a church, you look for a church with links in doctrine to Jesus and the apostles. And so you ask questions. Is Christ the focus of that ministry? Are people sincere in their desire to make Jesus Christ first and to glorify His name? And they'll not be the kind of church that receives commendations unless they're true to the Scriptures. Well, the Philadelphia church pleased the Lord of the church. And because they were faithful, He wrote them a letter and said that because they were true to His work, because of their faithfulness, They're valuable to its cause. And he shows that here, not by saying, oh, you are so valuable to me, but by telling them, I'm going to give you more of my work to do. I'm going to entrust you with more of of, of my work. 
And he promises, I'm going to protect you in that work and I'll make you pillars of the Christian faith. You see how that church, Philadelphia, is a church that we desire to be? That's most what we want to be like. With so many negatives that are said about all these other churches, it's good to find in the middle of all of that, there is a church that loved the Lord, a church that was faithful to the Lord, and they received a commendation. See how the letter begins with verse number 7. To the angel, of course that is to the pastor, to the pastor of this church in Philadelphia. And boy, wouldn't, you, wouldn't I want to be the pastor of that church to receive a letter like this from the Lord. To the angel, to that pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse number 13 begins, as did the other letters. The author signed his name with a personal description of himself. What we don't see here is Jesus Christ, not the letter signed at the bottom of it, not writing his name out, Jesus Christ, but he signs the letter with a phrase that is descriptive of him. And when he says that, uh, that he is holy, that he is true, and these things, this are, these are things that can be said by no other one but the Lord. Now most of the descriptions of Christ that are found in these letters are also found in the first chapter. The book of Revelation begins telling us that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there are descriptions of Him in the first chapter. And so when He comes to write the letters, there's no need for Him to sign His name because the descriptions have already been given. There is no one but Him that could have written the letters. Now, most people open their Bibles and they recognize the words of Christ. How do they recognize them? They're printed in red. Almost all Bible publishers print the words of Christ in red. But I hope that you recognize that Christ's words are important, not because they're printed in red to show that they are, but they're important and you know that because you've studied them and you understand why he said what he said, not just that he said it. This letter did not arrive in Philadelphia in red letters. But that didn't hinder the ability of the people who received it. Without seeing his name, they did see the description. And they saw that this must be Jesus Christ who wrote the letter. And this one is different than the others because the statement of Christ 
is not found in that first chapter. This one is a distinctly Old Testament reference to identify Him as God by using God's chief attributes. Now, in our last lesson, we said that this shows the omnipotence of Christ. That's where we spent our time talking about the omnipotence of Christ. And I want to talk about omnipotence for a few more minutes this morning. Jesus Christ is our God, and we could never say that enough. He is our God. He is God who made the world and all things in it. He is eternally existent in this Christmas season we can go to the Old Testament and we can find Him before His birth in Bethlehem. I showed that to you. You just read it a few minutes ago from Isaiah chapter 9. In the text of the, uh, of the letter to the Laodicean church that comes next, He made the point that He was from the beginning of the creation. That is, before anything that was created was created, He was there. He's the God who did it. He is the God of all power. He is the God who is able to create life and to control all people and events. He is the God who is sovereign and there is no one who asks Him, What are you doing, God? Why did you do that? It's His power and authority to which we surrender. He's not made in our image. We are made in His. And we are beneath Him. And farther beneath Him than most people want to admit and willing to admit he is not a man that we can sit in judgment with Him and reason with Him and, and talk about what God should or should not do. And so with this unique, peculiar identifier, peculiar to God alone, Jesus begins this letter. And with nearly as a direct statement as can be made, He said that He is God. And He said it by saying He is holy. Only God is holy. So we considered that first in the last message, Christ's character of holiness. And do you remember what I said about holy last week? If you didn't get anything else from that message, I want you to remember that fundamentally, at the very core of the meaning of the word, it means to be different. That Jesus Christ is holy, He is different, and God is different, He is set apart. Why is He set apart? Because of that difference. He's just not like anyone. There's no one who approaches what He is. He's too far different from us to make Him approachable. Now this was Isaiah's issue when he saw his vision of God on the throne. The seraphim were before the throne and they were protecting God's holiness and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now we think on those words, Jesus said, I am holy. And when Isaiah heard the words from the throne, he said, I'm dumbfounded. I can't speak in the presence of God. And when was the last time that you came into church, into the presence of Jesus Christ, and you said, I've got to hush my mouth. I can't speak here. Because... God is holy and Christ is holy. And maybe that will give you a sense of what I'm trying to draw out of us in, in our celebrations of worship and opening our services with the Word of God and reading the Word of God responsively at times. And I want to get across to you that Christ is holy and we can't speak in His presence unless we speak to Him through the Word of God. He is Almighty God. Jesus said, I'm holy. There's no mistake, he identifies himself as God. And so the readers of the letter knew what they were reading. What need is there for him to state his name, holy? 
That's enough to say who he is. Well, the holiness of Christ certainly deserves many, many more sermons, but I hope someday that we can conclude this study, and so we need to to move on to the next part of his description. And he says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. So we're going to talk a little bit about Christ's character of truthfulness. He is true. That's another absolute of God. Now, believe it or not, if you're confused about this, yes, there is absolute truth. And truth is found in Jesus Christ. There really is a way that you can tell the true from the false, that you can tell things that are in error from things that are right. We can separate those two things. There is a truth that is a standard of right and wrong. And again, believe it or not, In this world that we live in today, where it seems such an incredible thing to make a statement like this, that there is truth, all the nonsense that you hear says there is no truth, but the Word of God says absolute truth exists. There is static truth. There is truth that does not morph. There is truth that is eternal. There is truth that has never transformed itself, but it transforms all others. It's truth always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And the Philadelphia church must know that Jesus is truth. And we'll look at the importance of that statement for him, them a little bit later on. But first, I want you to understand that these letters were also written to you and me. I I hope that I've made that point clear as we've gone through uh, five other letters, that these are letters that are written to help us to meet the challenges of a modern world. And without doubt, one of the biggest challenges that we face as a church in this modern world is the identity of absolute truth and how that conflicts with the falsehoods of this culture. The Christian religion is incompatible with this culture because it has a faulty view of truth. Truth, they say, is relative. Truth, they say, is uncertain. Truth, they say, is whatever you want it to be. Several months ago, I preached on this subject of truth. I told you about a a video that was made of a young man who visited college campuses to ask questions about truth and relativism. And he didn't exactly ask in that way, but he was on a quest to prove that people really don't understand what's true and they're just... They're just mindless on some of these things. And so in an obvious demonstration, he, he, he exposed the nonsensical notion of relative truth. Now, as you know, the gender debate has seized the headlines of papers and news media with all of this confusion about who uses which bathroom. And that's brought to the forefront the gender debate. And so this young man, thinking about that, went on to college campuses and began to ask passers-by questions about this in a very, almost a subtle way. that They probably didn't even realize what they were doing. And so here was this young man on the college campus, and he asked people as they passed by, what if I told you that I was a 60-year-old black woman? Is that true? And did you know he asked that question over and over to America's brightest and best, that is the college students, the ones who are the future of our country, 
And do you know there's not one of them, of all the ones that he interviewed, not one of them said it's not true that this young adult Caucasian man was not an old 60-year-old black woman. Each of them stumbled at the question as they answered. And there was one young lady, a, a student, she rambled on like she had scrambled eggs for brains. And she was arguing about how, oh, this can be possibly true. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Each of them said, well, if that's what you think, that's your truth. It's true for you. And so, who am I to say that it's false? Now, this is a big problem for us, folks, whether you realize it or not. Do you understand what we're up against when we teach people the gospel of Jesus Christ? The world has never been in a place of such idiocy. And I hate to use these words, but the gospel is an impossible sell when you start out by saying, this is the truth. And so if you say to them, it's true, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And when you say it's true, what do they think? Sure. Why not? It's true. If you believe it, it's true for you. But not necessarily for me. And you might think, well, that's something new, isn't it? That people would think like this. That's a new approach. That's a novel approach. But it's not new or novel at all. It's only a variation of the age-old satanic theme that if I am to be saved, then I will be saved in the way that I think that I can be saved. I'll do it my way. As open-minded and as tolerant as the world claims to be, it cannot exist with Christianity. Because... Christ said, I am true, and I alone am truth. And he didn't mean, this is, my, this is my version of the truth. This is my opinion of truth. No, he meant that he is the only truth. Now pay close attention for just a minute. In Greek, there are two words for true. One means in the sense of a true statement as opposed to a false one. The second word means that which is real, as opposed to that which is unreal. The second word is the one that Jesus used. Now I want you to understand that Jesus did not say here, the words that I speak to you are true, even though he did say that at other times. But this time he said, I am true. And his meaning is, I am truth itself. That he is truth personified. And if he is, then he can't be anything but God. He is the righteous standard by which all truth is judged. And if you want to say that truth is relative, then understand it is relative to something. It's relative to God. And anything that falls short of God is untrue. He's the measuring stick. God is the bureau of weights and measures. Now, your opinion of truth is not going to alter that fact. Your opinion is not above that fact. Simply stated, your opinion doesn't matter. Unless you are as omnipotent as God is, not one of your contrary words will stand up to Him. You cannot challenge what God says is true. Any other opinion is denial of God. Now, rationally, this distills into the proposition that either there is absolute truth or there is no God. But to say that there is no God is irrational. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Those of you that are in the Roman study are very well acquainted with Paul's arguments about God in this passage. His purpose is to prove the universality of sin 
and the helplessness of being without the gospel of Christ. If all are sinners, then it must be because all have violated the standard. Paul's argument in the passage perfectly fits our purposes today. It'd be good for us to read this entire chapter and the second chapter and the third. But we're just going to summarize with a few verses. In the 18th chapter, or 18th verse rather, of chapter 1, it says that God's wrath is revealed against those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that word hold means to suppress. It means to put down. So he's saying that they hold down what they know to be true. God has made them to know this. They know that God is omnipotent because they can see His power in the creation. Verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, Paul is saying that people are willfully ignorant. They know this. It's in their nature to know it. In their heart, they know it. But they choose to deny it. It's obvious and it's rational, but they don't believe it. Look at verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They worship the creature. Who is this strange creature that they worship? Oh, we see it manifested in some things. He talks about creeping things and so on in the passage. But the things that they worship, the strange things, are only a manifestation of one thing, of one God. And that is the God of self. They worship self. They make self-God in their denial of the true God. Thus, we have the birth of relativism. Each of us is a God, so truth must be what I believe it to be. Each of us, as self-gods, have our own truth. And so if my truth crosses your truth, that really doesn't matter because we're individual gods. We find our truth in our God, so if self is God, what does that tell you about truth? How irrational and foolish is that? Here we are, we're just mindless dogs that are chasing our tails. Now, what Paul would say and what God says is that you created nothing. And to all the little gods we have to ask, by what authority are you right? Is it your authority that makes you right? Well, if that's so, then what did you create? That's what God asked Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What authority do you have to question me? And then God proceeded against Job's miserable comforters, his friends, and humiliated them. And, and, and this is the way it is. Unless, until you can look at the stars at night and say, I put those there, then you better listen and believe that the one who did put them there is the one who is right. And what will you do if he's not? Well, if you... Don't believe that he's right. Does that really make a difference? No. Because he's truth. He's the standard. And then perhaps you might say, well, because he rules, that doesn't make him right. Fine. Protest that all you want. What good is going to do you when you stand before him in judgment? Is truth, if truth is relative, then you better get with his program that his relative truth trumps yours. See, 
All of that's argument for argument's sake. We can just cut through all the semantics down to this one statement. Jesus said, I am true. Logically, we must accept that and conform to it. And I don't know how to explain it, but when you see Christ, you see truth. He is just truth. Now, the combination of holiness and truth are scriptural ways to describe God. These characteristics of Christ are set before the Philadelphia church. So they see that the one who is holy and the one is true does not find them to be unholy liars. They're not perfect. We've already said that. None is. But they're a church that aspires to holiness by recognizing sin and dealing with that sin and eliminating it. Because of applying Christ's truth, they get to the holiness that God requires. They know what God expects and they do it as they listen to His words. Now, in the modern context, this is the church that searches both the Old and the New Testaments to find the doctrines of Christ. And there is a scriptural term for that. Did you know? And I hope you knew what what that scriptural term is. They may have been the church at Philadelphia, but what are they? Bereans, I heard somebody say. That's our scriptural term. They are Bereans. Now, if the one who is truth itself tells you that you're right, then what greater encouragement is there? And truly, I say it, that's without the pun. They are the blessed church. Now, in the context of this church in the first century, how is that especially important to them? Well, you start over and you recognize the problems that are in each of these churches. There are Nicolaitans in the churches. Do you remember them? We talked about them. These are churches that are near to one another. A heresy that's in one church has likely reached to another church, and so the same people are affecting them all. And perhaps the Nicolaitans are what we discussed in earlier messages, that that maybe this is the seed of apostasy that eventually became Roman Catholicism. It looks very much like it. It's, It's the doctrine of Balaam, the idol worship and fornication. Perhaps the heresy that's reaching them is the seed of charismania. Today's charismatics are in love with this thing that's called the little God doctrine. That's basically what I said just a moment ago, the little God doctrine. We're all gods, they say. And we do see women preachers like Jezebel at Thyatira. And then there are the Judaizers who are the synagogue of Satan. And you think about the rituals of Judaism. And what is it that has permeated the Christian church to such a degree that it throws people off about salvation in Jesus Christ? Is it not the rituals? Is it not the sacraments? And people think that sacraments are a means of grace. And so from top to bottom in these churches, from spiritually dead at Smyrna to those in Laodicea that we'll see are an emetic to the Savior's stomach, there are wild doctrines, there is false teaching, there are worldly compromises. This is going on everywhere. And so what is it like to have truth personified come to your church and say to you, you're faithful, you're okay. You're the church that's kept the faith. All this bad stuff's going on around them, but not in Philadelphia, not in that church. All the same temptations are there, the temptations to give in, to accept the culture. All of that's in Philadelphia, but they had not taken their dive into the depths of Satan. They're within walking distance of all the heresy. It's close by them, 
But these are people that remained true and they kept the name of Christ. And so the Holy One of the church, the owner of the church, looks at them and he finds there are none of those problems. Persecuted. Of course they're persecuted. This is first century we're talking about. This is the Roman Empire we're speaking of. Of course they're persecuted, but they're holding out faithful. What do we learn from that? God accepts no excuses. If one church can be faithful, and if one church can withstand all the onslaught of Satan, if one church can do that, all churches can do it. If one Christian can do it, then all can do it. If the person that sits next to you in your pew is holy, then why can't you be holy? The same Spirit's in every believer. Do you have an excuse not to be as faithful as the person who's on the other end of your pew? Why? Where, what is your excuse? You can't be as faithful as him unless there is a fundamental difference between you and him. If the Spirit is missing, excuse granted. Because you can't be faithful if you're not a Christian. And I'm afraid that in many churches, they're missing the Holy Spirit. They aren't born again and the lives of the people prove it. So let's be honest about this. We're discussing truth today. Some are not as faithful as others. And so what would the Lord say if He wrote a letter to you? What would you give as your excuse for not being as faithful as Christians should be? Well, there are a lot of good things in this letter. The first sentence is especially good because there's high hope in this. There's a lot of trouble, no question, and yes, we all have human weaknesses, but still, here is a blessed church. They've gone through all of that. They're blessed because they strive to be like Christ, holy and true. Now let me finish the introduction of this letter with one more description. And this is Christ's character of faithfulness. Holiness, truthfulness, and faithfulness. Now what do I mean by his faithfulness? Well, faithfulness flows out of truthfulness because he's true, he's always faithful to his promises. If he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. Well, where do we see that in the text? Well, we could go over to the 14th verse and talk about Laodicea, where it definitely says there that, that uh, he's faithful and true. It does say that in that 14th verse. But where do we find it over here in the letter to Philadelphia? Well, here it is. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true... He that hath the key of David. There's our clue. The key of David. Well, what is that? Well, now we go to the Old Testament to find out. Because here we have a reference of the Messiah that is straight out of the prophecy in Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Trustworthiness is a very important character trait in the Scriptures. And in this passage... Hezekiah, the king, the king in the text, was he's descended from David. He had a faithful servant that he put in charge of the treasury of David. His name is Eliakim, and he was a type of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 22 and verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22. 
and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him, that is, upon this nail in the sure place. They shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. That's a great scripture. Is there any doubt in our mind who that reference is? Now, sure, we have an application to Hezekiah. That's the person in the text. We have an application to his servant Eliakim. But this is far more than about Hezekiah and Eliakim. In the ninth chapter that we read a few minutes ago in our congregational reading, do you remember it said there, the government shall be upon his shoulders. The government shall be on the shoulders of the Messiah. And this text mentions those shoulders, and it mentions the robe and the girdle. Our Sunday night services, we've talked about this. Those are references to the types of the priesthood that are found in Jesus Christ. Those are tabernacle references. The authority of government is placed upon the last descendant of David. And that person is Jesus Christ. He has the key of David. As described right here in Revelation 3 verse 7. He opens and he shuts because he has that key. In Isaiah, the key is to the treasure house of David. All the gold, all the silver, all the vessels and jewels, all the wealth of that great King David are in that treasure house. Those are earthly things that symbolize heavenly things. That in heaven, there's this great storehouse of treasure that belongs to God. And in that storehouse are all the benefits that He has for His people. The fullness of God is there. And no doubt Isaiah refers to Christ in His great kingdom that one day will come to this earth. You see, the New Testament explains passages like that. You know, I told you, you need last week, I said you need the Old Testament to understand the New. You need the New to understand the Old. And so Revelation makes this connection to Jesus who said, I have the key of David. Now the last time I said, you know, it's, it's really good for us to read a letter every now and then that relieves some pressure. Amidst all this talk of trouble, of rebuke and chastisement and all the threats that are in these letters, much of our preaching is just like all of that. And it is because that's the pattern of New Testament preaching. But every now and then you get a text that just rises above the nastiness of the sinful world. Every now and then you get to see the result of holiness and truthfulness and faithfulness. And here we see that. There, there's a promise of heaven and all the treasures that are stored up for faithful believers. Oh, it doesn't last very long. I mean, we get to read a little bit of that, but it isn't very long before we return to all the bad stuff. As soon as you see something good, right following it is something bad. And we're brought back to a reminder of everything that is bad. Let, let me show you an example of it, as if you needed one. Just, just turn over to a few pages to Revelation 21. This is a chapter that begins with the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. And this is a glorious scene of that city. And verse number 4 says that in heaven, in the city, the new Jerusalem, there is no sorrow and there is no crying. 
That's good. There is no pain in heaven. And verse number 5 reminds us of the good that's in our text today. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And then comes the great promise in verses 6 and 7. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. These are descriptions of Christ that we see in the seven letters. So that's good. Chapter 21 gives us good stuff. The new Jerusalem, the promise that God's going to dwell with his people, the promise that... Tears and pain are gone. Descriptions of the glorious Christ are in there. But then comes our awful reminder. The human condition shows up right afterwards in verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then the text returns the good stuff. City with pearly gates, diamond walls, foundations of precious stones. The light of the glory of the Son of God shines through it and breaks into a dazzling prism of light. But then once again, brought right back down to fallen humanity in verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whosoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the pattern. Lots of bad stuff, then some good, then more bad stuff. I hope that helps you to understand why sermons are structured the way that they are. And so when you see this infrequent glimpse of something good, there's where you want to go, there's where you want to stay, and you just like to savor all those good things. I think even Jorge, who never liked a sermon unless I said hell 40 times, Even he likes to hear something good now and then. He likes to hear some treasures about the treasures of heaven. And so to Jorge, we say, yes, Jorge, there is a hell. But there is also a heaven, did you know? But there are other scriptures, too, that are rest to weary travelers. They commend hope of good things. And they make sure that we don't distort this fact that the gospel is good news. The gospel is always good news. And we understand we've got to prepare people with the bad news first. But when you finally get to the gospel, the good is better than the bad is bad. Yeah, there is a hell. But here, here's the best news. Christ has the key to everything that's in the treasure house. And the fullness of everything in the treasure house is ours by faith in Him. He promised that. And he's faithful to give it, to give us all of it. And he says here, I have the authority to open that door. I've got the key to that door. And I'll exchange everything that's in there for your faithfulness. Now there are millennial implications in the passage. I'll be happy to get to those. There's a tremendous promise that he'll keep the church going through, from going through the tribulation. I'm thrilled to know that too. I don't know when those things will come, but I do know that they're coming. How? Because the one who's true said so. I believe it because he said so. 
But rather than look only at future promises, I, I, I like to know, what has he got for me now? What's he going to do for me here? Some think there, there isn't anything for us here now. And so they stare off into, into space like a lost puppy dog waiting for somebody to throw them a bone. So what do I know right now? Well, I know this. I came into church today and the room is filled with tables and chairs and there's the smell of food cooking over in the other room there. And those ladies that are working hard over there because they're going to give me some kind of an honor for the 15 years of, of pastoring Berean Baptist Church. And so I know that I've got friends. I know that I've got people in my church that are family. I know there are people here that I love. God has something for me here. I know that there's peace and joy in my heart. I know I'm blessed and happy because of all these brothers and sisters and the work that God given me has given me to do in this church. All of that's here with me now. Now we ought not to complain about preaching against sin and preaching against the, uh, the things that the Lord rebukes. We need that. But we also need to remember that it's not true that God is never anything but angry at the church. Oh, He is righteous in His anger, but He's never vindictive towards His children. Did, did, did you see how we read that in Isaiah chapter 9? As, as we were going through there, uh, if I just go back to that chapter and look it up again here, um, it says, like in verse 17 of chapter 9, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men. He's rebuking them. Neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all is anger, and God is angry, isn't He? Angry against sin, for all is anger. That anger's not turned away, but, but, His hand is stretched out still. God calls the wanderer back, He calls to repentance. All those bad things that we do, God can forgive and bring us closer to Him. It's a righteous anger, but He's not vindictive towards us. His hand stretches out still. So this is great. You know, it's like a child that gets a whipping. The Lord says, I needed to do that. I, ne I needed to teach you something. I have to do that. And I did it because I want to bless you. And then He gathers us in His arms and... He tenderly caresses and kisses us and tells us, I love you with an everlasting love. And he says, there is nothing that can separate you from my love. So that's holiness and truthfulness and faithfulness. That's a terrific way for the Lord to start out this letter to a church and all the things that they're going through, seeing all the things that the other churches have experienced, and all the persecutions that are there, the devil's onslaught against them every single day of the week. It's welcome to receive a letter from the Lord, people that are longing to hear from their gracious Lord. And he says to them, you've done well. You're a good church. You've done what I've told you to do, so I'm going to keep on blessing you. So let's just stay tuned. There's more to come about this church. What the Spirit says to the church at Philadelphia, good things that we can learn from the Berean Baptist Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words of this letter. We are a church that's living in a very wicked generation. We know that. 
It's hard to reach people with the gospel of Christ because of these issues that we're facing about truth. People don't believe that there is any truth that can be counted on. There's nothing that's true all across the board in every situation that never changes. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said that he is. No matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the difficulty, no matter the good, the bad, or whatever, the indifferent, truth is still truth in Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful for that truth because it is the truth that saves. And we know, Lord, we can't crack the hull of the unbeliever who's conditioned by Satan, by the world, even by his own depraved heart to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't penetrate it. There's not a thing that we can do about it. All that we can do is give the gospel of Christ and let you, let your Holy Spirit take the word, make it effectual in the heart of the sinner. When we stand on that truth, we expect that your word will never return void. So we know what we preach today is going to help somebody somewhere, maybe someone in a distant land as they hear it over the internet, or someone in this church who just hands it to a neighbor next door and says, listen to this. Lord, help us to give the truth and depend on that truth. Bless our church. We thank you for it. Thank you, Lord, as the pastor of this church for 15 years that you've given me to teach your people. And Lord, I pray that we've been faithful to do it. Bless our church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank, thank the Lord for the Word of God. Thank Him that we can preach truth today. You don't have to guess about it, whether what He says here, is it true, is it not true? The one who is true and faithful says, I am true, and He is the living Word. And we can always count on that. This is the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org